Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. This week, we're bringing you the top science from the Royal Institute of Navigation's annual international conference, including how to find your way through space, the trousers that can track your every move, and are we ready for driverless cars? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Navigation is at the heart of trade, travel, leisure and sport, from our commute to work to holidays abroad and even setting our eyes on space. And Glasgow has just hosted the annual International Navigation Conference, which was opened by the Princess Royal, and it was to showcase the science that gets us from here to there. For the president of the Royal Institute of Navigation, James Taylor, the subject is very close to his heart because he was a captain of a nuclear submarine at the height of the Cold War. When you are fully submerged, you are much more conscious of the fact of moving in three dimensions in a huge space, whereas man is by and large a two-plane animal. And submarining is true navigating because you are moving in three dimensions. But you become entirely accustomed to the fact that your visual range is limited to a matter of feet. And that you are reliant on your instrumentation and the feel you get through the soles of your feet to tell you what the weather is like, the sea conditions. And over years, you build up an almost instinctive feeling for what the weather might be. Captain James Taylor, and we'll hear more from him later how ancient mariners with slightly less advanced technologies than a nuclear submarine used coconuts to nonetheless perform impressive feats of navigation. But first, it's not just submarines and ships that need help finding their way around. Animals need to be able to navigate their environment to find food, water, to return to shelter and learn where to avoid. This means that our brains are astonishingly adept at working out where we are. Kate Jeffrey is a neuroscientist at University College London and she spoke at the conference about how our brains pull this off. Well, a very important thing when you're walking around a familiar environment is memory. So you've been there before. For example, you come out of the underground tube station and and there's the street. So the first thing that your brain has to do is 
recall, based on what you can see now, its map of the last time you were there, and um, and that map has an orientation to it, so a compass direction, which you've learned about as well. And then you have to decide where you want to go, so somewhere in that map is a goal. So, for example, you want to go to the pub or post office or something. <laughs> so you have to try and recall in your memory where that goal is and then plan a path from one to the other. And what form does this map take in the brain? Well, like all forms of knowledge, it's fundamentally activity of neurons. And we think that some of the neurons that are particularly important for space are these things called place cells, which are found in the hippocampus, which is a little part of the brain very deep in the, in the part of the brain behind the ears, the temporal lobe. And these neurons become very active when you go to a particular place. So each neuron has its own place where it becomes active. And we think that what these neurons are doing is signalling that you're at a place, a particular place. And often it's a place that you've been to before, in which case it'll be the same neuron that was active the last time that you were there. Okay, so for example, when I go into my kitchen, there's my, would my kitchen neuron light up? That's right, although it's not just one neuron, it's, it's many. So as you're walking around your kitchen, these neurons will become active one after the other. The map is spread among hundreds or thousands of neurons, it's not just one. But the, the puzzle now is, you know, a neuron being active might tell you where you are, but how do you represent where you want to be? So is there another map, or is it the same map? And if so, what does the activity of the place where you want to be look like? So we haven't, um, haven't solved that one yet. It's still a mystery. As well as these place cells, which light up when you're in a familiar area, are even more mysterious neurons, which can help you navigate around any space. And they're called grid cells. Grid cells are neurons that are found in the entorhinal cortex, which is the part of the brain that sends most of the cortical projections to the hippocampus, you know, from the sense organs and so on. And these neurons were investigated because of this projection. So it was thought, if we look at what's sending information to the place cells, we might get some insights as to how the place cells know where the rat is or the human. And it was discovered that these neurons are also active when the rat goes into specific places, But it's not just one place for these cells, it's multiple places. And these multiple places are evenly spaced and regularly arranged. The neurons themselves are randomly scattered throughout the interrhinal cortex, but the patches of activity are equally spaced. It's, It's hard to imagine quite what that means if you haven't seen a neuron, but, you know, when the rat goes into a particular place, a grid cell will be active. If the rat walks 30 centimetres north, let's say, that cell will become active again. The rat walks another 30 centimetres north, that cell becomes active again. And if you plot out all of the places where this neuron likes to fire, you find it makes this really regular pattern. So it's a very extraordinary discovery. It's the type of thing that we would never have predicted in a million years. But once it was discovered, it immediately just all fell into place. Aha, this is how the place cells know how far the rat has walked. It's using these grid cells. And these grid cells are switching on and off and on and off and on and off as the rat walks, and that's how the place cells know how far the rat's gone. So now we're trying to understand exactly how all of that works. Yeah, that's incredible. So they, I, I'm assuming it doesn't matter how fast or slow the rat is going, they seem to be able to know the distance. Do we have any idea how, how these neurons are lighting up so consistently? Not yet. There are lots of theories, and you're quite right. It's, it's um, independent of how fast or slowly the rat's walking. So the, the cells are able to um, interpret the sensory information that's coming in based on how fast they know the rat's going. So somewhere in the brain is 
some neurons that are calculating how fast the rat is going. So the hunt is on now to find out where those are. <laughs> they may be in the interrhinal cortex, there's some evidence for that, but then the question becomes, well, how do they know how fast the rat's walking? And there's a whole lot of ways that might be from the visual world and the speed with which it moves past the eyes, from the movements the rat's making, how fast the legs are moving, and, and so on and so on. So a lot of information is being integrated to make these calculations. Our brains, it turns out, can layer grids over our environment while we move. Pretty impressive. But with all our reliance on our smartphones and sat-navs to get us around, will our navigation centres, our hippocampuses, shrivel away and die? That's a, that's a very good question. Do Is it really use it or lose it? So I think it's... It's probably too soon to tell the answer to that. My hunch is probably not, because the hippocampus is very busy. I mean, you're you're using it all the time just to walk around your house, even though you don't need your phone and and GPS or anything. You're still needing your hippocampus to know where you are in your house. How do I get from my bedroom to my bathroom and so on? Um, So it's always busy. Um, Maybe it's not as busy these days as it would have been in olden times when we were navigating through the forest. That's quite possibly true, but on the other hand, we stimulate our brains in a lot of other ways with our watching television and our virtual reality games and so on. So I think we're not going to become, you know, a species of <laughs> decrepit, you know, <laughs> brain damaged people unable to function. I think we'll adapt. We always adapt. And technology always ends up enriching our lives, I think. Professor Kate Jeffrey from UCL. And it's intriguing to think that the brain has the neurological equivalent of a radar grid keeping tabs on where we are at all times. But this only works up into a point, and we have to rely heavily on visual landmarks to find our way around. So how did early seafarers crossing the open ocean do it? The answer was to use the positions of stars. By measuring the angles to different stars, you can work out your line of latitude. In other words, how far north or south you are. And some ancient mariners had some very clever ways of doing it. Captain James Taylor again. If you go back to the South Seas in Centuries ago, the South Sea Islanders used latitude sailing, which was effectively using a coconut shell part filled with water with apertures drilled in it so that a reflected heavenly body would be seen by the user at an appropriate angle so the mariner would keep that heavenly body at that particular angle and that led to latitude sailing. So you would go along a line of latitude until you got to where you wanted to be and then go straight north or south, away from or towards the sun. Uh, And it was that, the limitation of latitude sailing, which led to the absolute need to establish a means of determining longitude. Why can we work out latitude using a coconut shell, but we can't work out longitude then? Because the Earth rotates around its north-south axis and therefore... You're using heavenly bodies and they're tracking across the sky uh, to uh, basically to follow. But if you need a true position, and much of this was generated by various accidents where people did not know the longitude, the legendary loss of the the treasures in Admiral Cloudesley Shovel's wreck of uh, the Sillies, for example, is that you needed to determine longitude and true position. And that was much more economical. Instead of going, uh, as it were, through a series of right angles in order to complete your journey, you could go directly. So basically, because the Earth is turning, you need to know what time of day it is very precisely to know where those stars in the sky that you're following should be. Indeed. And uh, 
the easiest indicator of your own longitude is the sun. When the sun is at its highest point in the sky, that effectively you're on that line of latitude. And so once Harrison had invented his chronometer, an accurate form of timekeeping, and you knew the longitude of your point of departure and the time difference between your point of departure and your current position when the sun is directly overhead, you had a longitude relative to your point of departure. And custom and practice dictated that the standard point of departure was Greenwich. And so Greenwich became the zero degrees of east-west longitude, and you could now measure time when the sun was at its highest point relative to that. So we now had latitude and longitude. James Taylor. And we've come a long way since then, and of course, chances are, to get around, you probably rely heavily on GPS. That stands for Global Positioning System. But how many of us actually know how it really works? Before the conference, I'll happily admit I had no idea. I was really surprised to find out that GPS was actually created by the US Department of Defence. And it's one of several groups of satellites out there, collectively known as GNSS, or Global Navigation Satellite Systems. Terry Moore is Professor of Satellite Navigation at the University of Nottingham, and he kindly got me up to speed on how having satellites around the world can tell me, and my smartphone, where I am. You are positioning yourself with respect to the satellites. Now, there's a a general misconception about this, and this is sometimes popularised by the press and films and things, that it's a tracking system, that there's sort of spies in the sky that are watching you all the time. Well, if you think currently at the moment, there are are 4 billion receivers in the world, so it clearly doesn't work like that. And so what's happened is signals leave the satellites and are transmitted down, just like a radio signal on the radio or the TV, so they're they're just transmitted signals, and then your unit in your smartphone or your sat-nav in your car receives those signals. And what we actually do, it's all based on time. So the satellites have very precise clocks, and they transmit coded signals that basically say when the signal left the satellite. And what your receiver does in your smartphone, it it times when those signals arrive, and by knowing when it arrived and when it left, we can work out the distance using the speed of light. And so by measuring the distance to all these different satellites, we can just do, do some geometry and work out where we are. Right, so I guess it's very important that the clocks are accurate then. Well, this is one of the really neat tricks, yeah, because if we think about the speed of light, if we go back to that, and we think about something that we use every day, an A4 sheet of paper, light will travel from one end, from one A4 sheet of paper to the other, in one nanosecond, one billionth of a second. So if we're wanting to position and we wanted to measure the distance, let's say to a metre, then all this timing I've talked about needs to be synchronised to three nanoseconds, three billionths of a second. So we've got to have clocks on the satellites, clocks in your phone, which are all going to be synchronised. That sounds impossible. Now, we can get very good synchronisation on the satellites because they're using very precise atomic clocks and they're constantly monitored. So we know that they're on a stable time base. And time, uh, according to Einstein, is relative. So how do you deal with the fact that how time may be moving out in space may not be quite the same as how it's moving here. Yeah, this is a very important point, and it's designed into the systems. We have to take relativity into account in two ways, because the, these clocks, as we've said, the satellites, are flying along at four kilometres a second. And so that has a special relativistic effect, and the time appears slower, 
but also the, the clocks are flying in in a different gravitational field, much lower gravitational field than on the surface of the Earth, and so we get a general relativistic correction, and that makes the clock appears to run faster. And so combine the special relativity and the general relativity together, we would get a, the wrong time on the clock on the satellite. So what happens is they are actually run at the wrong rate. We seem to have them running at the rate we expect the time to be running, but they are deliberately skewed, so they run at a different rate, so that by the time we see it, we're seeing the correct rate, if that makes sense. <laughs> Without going too much into the <laughs> physics, yeah. In terms of the, uh, the satellites, how, how many are up there and how long do they last? They are designed to have uh, around about, let's say, seven to ten years. I mean, it, it varies between which constellation and which generation of spacecraft, but that sort of age of about seven to ten years is a good number to work with. Uh, and, and how many do you need? Well, we can. It, this depends on how far away the satellites are. Okay, so the satellites we use for GPS and for the European Galileo and the Russian GLONASS systems, they're all about 20,000 kilometres above the Earth in what we call medium Earth orbit. And so how many do you need for that? Well, you need about 24, 27, 30 satellites, and the different constellations have those as their key numbers. Now, GPS at the moment currently has 31 satellites of various generations and various ages, and it's slightly overpopulated because some of the older satellites are getting quite old and they're coming to the end of their lives. So there are newer satellites there, just in case the old ones happen to have problems. I suppose eight to ten years doesn't actually seem that long to me when you're actually having to send something into space. I mean, who, who picks up the bill for this? Yeah, uh, Yes, it's an expensive business. So it depends where you are in terms of who picks up the bill. Uh, if we're talking about GPS, then the U.S. taxpayer has been very generously doing that for us for the last 30-odd years now. So GPS is owned and operated by the United States, and it's operated as a dual-use system for civil and military users, but it's operated by the U.S. Air Force Space Command. So they get the money from the federal budget within the United States, and that's what's paid for the system. And as you say, it is expensive. A, a satellite launch may cost of the order of $60, $70 million. If you're in Europe, then, then you and I are paying for it. Um, our taxes are paying for the Galileo program, which is paid out of the European Commission's budget, or the European Union's budget, and the current bill that we are paying is, is €900 million Euro per year is being spent out of the European budget to pay for the development and deployment of Galileo. So GPS is already available to us in, the, in Europe. Why do we need Galileo? The, the European Union is very interested in developing our own systems so that we are then building spacecraft. Uh, we are building the ground segment. We are building the receiver segment. We are building the location services industries all based on that. And that's all jobs within Europe. So you can make a, an argument based on market penetration. You can make arguments in terms of what we call sovereign control. The way that GPS is owned and operated, as I said, by a single state, by the United States of America, and it is there as a military force enhancer, but it is now so critical to so many aspects of our lives in terms of the positioning and navigation, but also timing. If you remember what I said earlier on, when we're solving for the way we use GPS, we solve for time all the time, and that means we have a very precise way of, of disseminating time around, and that's now used throughout what we call critical infrastructure. So telecommunications, banking, uh, the internet, uh, all, all digital radio even, are all based on timing provided by GPS and other satellite navigation systems. So, but that's all under the control 
of another state <laughs> as a defense tool. So in terms of simple software control of critical infrastructure, we need to have our hands on the system which is giving those critical services. Professor Terry Moore from Nottingham University. You're with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith, and we're mapping out the science of navigation. Still to come, how do you find your way through space, and what are the trials and tribulations awaiting the advent of driverless cars? But first, while systems like GPS bring enormous advantages, they also have problems. For a start, they usually don't work indoors. And in cities like London, dominated by high-rise buildings, the signal can be patchy at best and usually cuts out right before a critical navigational decision is needed. Yes, we've probably all been there. The problem stems in part from the way that GPS devices handle the signals fed into them. But that might be about to change, thanks to a new Cambridge-based startup who've invented technology which they claim can make GPS devices a thousand times more sensitive than they are at the moment. Ramsey Farragher. GPS satellites are 20,000 kilometres away, orbiting the Earth. They transmit a very weak signal, it's only 50 watts, like a light bulb, but it travels all that distance, and when it reaches the surface of the Earth, it's lost so much energy that we only pick up signals that are a billionth of a billionth of a watt. So it's incredibly weak. The sensitivity of the receivers we have today is such that um, they can cope with a small amount of material in the way, like the leaves of trees or uh, maybe a very thin wooden wall. But... The challenge we have in cities is that the signal can get stopped when it hits a building. You're on the other side of that building, but that signal from the satellite might reflect off a large piece of metal or another building or a puddle on the ground and scatter back towards you from a different direction. And that delays the timing signal that's being carried by that satellite. And current receivers don't do anything overly clever to uh, unpick and distinguish between these and filter out the reflections. Right, so instead of being able to see a a series of independent signals coming in, all time-stamped, and you're measuring the time differences, if one of them has bounced off like a bullet ricocheting around a room, a whole bunch of buildings before it gets to the device, it's going to feed the the receiving device incorrect time signals, so it's going to think you're not where you are. And so as a result, it knows something's gone wrong, and so it just says... I can't detect a valid signal. Yeah, exactly. And and critically, the maths that's going on inside the GPS receivers always assume that you have a line-of-sight signal. The receivers try to do some things to tidy up that mushed, delayed timing measurement, but they still put it through the same line of maths as if it was a line-of-sight signal, even if it's not. And this is where we get really big errors in cities. And also why... I mean, we're inside here in a building. I just turned my phone on to see if I could localise myself. It says it can't find a GPS signal. That would be why, presumably. Yes. So um, we're only actually a few metres from a window, but the other side of that window is an urban canyon. We're in the middle of Glasgow city centre, and that receiver's not sensitive enough to pick them up through the walls and the ceiling of this building. So no GPS for you. It's a major headache, isn't it? Because if you're a person trying to find their way around a town using your phone, you often get lost when actually you're trying to find where you're going. Emergency vehicles might be held up trying to find their way to a a location. So what can we do about it? Well, firstly, much more seriously and concerning, if you make an emergency call on a mobile device and it tries to turn on the GPS chip in order to provide the emergency services with your location, then you're at the mercy of the environment you're in. So if you're outside in the open, then a GPS fix will occur 
and the emergency services can see where you are. To what sort of accuracy? Well, if you're outside in the open, um, 10 metres. But people who are inside with no GPS fix, they don't have that luxury. And uh, we know that at the moment, hundreds of thousands of people die worldwide every year on emergency calls, speaking to the uh, 999 operator. And there's no way of knowing where they are. Yeah, so you made the problem very clear to me. Have you got a solution? Well, one way to try and uh, solve this problem is to dramatically improve the performance of the GPS receivers. And at Focal Point Positioning, we've developed a new way of processing the GPS data so that it's a 1,000 times more sensitive than existing receiver designs. And uh, we clean up the multipath interference, that is the, the reflected signals versus the line-of-sight signals. So we get a boost in sensitivity that's beyond other people's way of detecting signals inside buildings. And we clean up those signals so that the accuracy is high inside the building as well as high outside the building. I know you don't want to blow your patent, so I'll ask you to word the answer cautiously, but are you doing it by being able to work out what's a real line-of-sight signal coming in from the satellite versus what must have bounced around like a bullet ricocheting off the nearby buildings, and because you can tell them apart, you can clean up the signal? Is that how you do it? There's a number of clever things we've done. We've started again basically with a blank piece of paper and said, here's where the electromagnetic radiation is hitting the antenna, and let's work from here and we're going to ask the question every stage along the way, is this the state of the art, or can we do better? There's a number of stages that we've improved, but critically what we've done is just change the software that runs on the chip. So a person who uses this ultimately when it becomes available, they would need to install this into their device, into the chip in their phone, for example, to make it work? They would not. We are aiming to license this technology to chipset manufacturers so that they change the software on their chips. And we're talking to people in both the smartphone industry and the automotive sector. Our technology dramatically improves GPS positioning around buildings in cities as well, which is very important, not just for people who want their Uber driver to turn up at the right place, but for the coming autonomous vehicles that will be safely driving us home while we sleep in the back. Ramsey Farragher. And we'll return to the subject of autonomous vehicles later on in the programme. But before that, as the saying goes, knowledge is power. And... If you're the navigator of a naval vessel, moving at over 70 miles per hour, you need to know in a flash where you are and where to go next. But when the cockpits of these boats, which are powered by four jet engines, were designed, no one knew whether the information being presented to the navigator on computer displays and instruments was easy to marry up with what was actually visible through the windows. Now we do. I'm a technical manager at the Royal Norwegian Navy Navigation Competence Centre. So the navigator of a high-speed craft like the Norwegian Navy Corvettes, which is known as the Shoal class, is uh, quite demanding because inside uh, the ship there is a lot of equipment. The navigator sits in a chair and in front of him he has three screens and on this uh, screen, he's got the electronic charts, and the radar, and all type of sensors which are feeding into the system. So it's a complex environment to work in. And also, of course, the world around him is moving very fast because he's traveling at speeds up to 70 miles per hour. And uh, he needs to control that the ship is in the right position all of the time. So he has to continuously monitor the position of the ship. Therefore, one would be looking out of the window, comparing that to what the charts on the screen are saying and, and the radar images, and trying to put all of that information through 
that person, man or woman's mind very quickly. How did you try to work out what the person was doing when they were doing that? The method of uh, collecting this information was the eye tracking uh, glasses, which is glasses that you fit the navigator. It's, it looks like reading glasses. There are cameras that recognizes where the person looks. So if he looks outside, you get a hit on the outside, and if he looks at the screen, you get a hit on the screen. We did this both in sea trials and in simulator studies. We had approximately four hours of recording. What patterns emerge? Where do the people look? Where do they spend most of their time staring at? There's been a concern in the maritime community with regards to what they call the PlayStation mode, which is uh, young navigators tend to rely on the information from the computer screen instead of looking out the window at the surroundings of the ship. So a worry was that a lot of the attention was with regards to the inside of the ships and the displays. But what we found was that actually 65% of the time the navigator is looking outside and continuously monitoring the surroundings of the ship. But still 35% of the time is used looking at something else. Can you get a sort of finer grained analysis out in the sense that if I was, say, looking at a map on my phone and then trying to work out if I was in the right place, I might look at the phone and then look back at the street and then look back at the phone to see if what I thought I'd seen was what I should be seeing. Can you see those sort of double journeys the eyes make back and forward between the equipment and the outside world to see how quickly people got the information and and were able to process it? When analysing the eye-tracking data, this is one of the features that you can get, and we call it a look-back. If you, for example, look at some of the equipment inside, you look outside, scan the environment, maybe you look at another equipment, but you look back at the same equipment, and it could be an indication of poor usability. Because the people who design these user interfaces and the way data is displayed very often aren't the navigators or the pilots of these craft themselves. They're people who work with them occasionally and they they present something that they think will be fit for purpose. But it's not till you actually get someone using it and you find, in fact, it's not as good as it could be. That's a very good observation, Chris, and I totally agree. And it's a very important issue that the engineers that are designing the systems often hasn't been at sea at all. They are very good at designing complex systems, but they have never sat in the chair that has to take the ship forward. And are you going to sort of close that audit loop now, where you've got your data, you know what they're not looking at, what's going on, because they're looking at a computer screen, you know when that's happening. So can you or will you now be using that to optimise the way that the cockpit is formatted and the way that the data is displayed on these computer screens? Yes, this process is called a human-centered design process. So what we are doing now with the Corvettes is that we have them for retrofit. So now uh, we have collected this data and we have seen some things that need to be adjusted to make the navigator's job easier. So in the retrofit process, this is being done and hopefully this will benefit the navigator in his work. And lastly, mobile phones and people driving have got enormous attention, especially here in the UK. And people are saying it's because they're very complicated to use, very fiddly, and it takes people's attention away. It's the same problem, isn't it? It's the exact same problem, and uh, and that's why it's uh, important that we take a better look and understand better how this should work, and especially making the designing the human into the technology. Remember that they have to interact. Odd Swining Haruja. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills, and we're looking at the navigation technology that's taking us from here into the future. Coming up, how do we find our way in space, and what happens if a driverless car gets hacked? Before that, though, GPS isn't the only way to work out where you are, because scientists are now developing a design for self-navigating trousers that can keep track of your movements and could even save your life. Nottingham University's Terry Moore. So this is a way of trying to do indoor navigation by using the human body itself, and in particular by measuring what's happening in, in people's muscles in their legs as they're walking. And by measuring those voltages in the muscles, we can actually therefore learn what sets of signals mean somebody walks in a straight line or somebody goes around a curve. Tell us how you do it. At the moment, we're doing it by sticking small sensors, the ones you might see in a hospital, uh, on, onto people's legs, and we are measuring the voltages in various muscle groups. So we've used motion tracking, like you'd see in, in, in the Hollywood, where they're making films and things. We use motion tracking to know exactly how somebody's moved. And at the same time, we've measured the voltage impulses in the muscles. And then using a technique we call machine learning, we then effectively produce a model that says this set of voltages corresponded with this motion. So what we've then done to test it is then by, once we have that model, then just from a separate set of data, just fed in the voltages and therefore predicted what the model said, where the person moved. And of course, we then closed the loop by using the same motion tracking with that data set, we were able to test how closely our predictions, based just on the voltages in the muscles, how that would correspond with what actually happened. So you get a fingerprint voltage profile, if you like, which must correspond to different patterns of muscle movements, which must correspond to movements people are making. That means you learn what voltages correspond to what movements people make for that person. And then after that, it's just a question of you can record the voltages to work out where someone's gone. You don't need any more precise measurements than that. That's correct, yeah. It's a dead reckoning technique, as we call it in, in navigation. You're assuming you know where you started, but then you're going to know how you've moved forward to the next location from that. So the sort of applications we've got here... Obviously, we don't want to do this eventually by sticking sensors onto people. Well, that was going to be my question. It's not very aesthetic. It's not very fashionable yeah. to go around with you know, cardiac ECG stickers stuck on your legs. So how could you get around this, and why do you want to do this? Okay, that's the next stage of the research we're doing now with colleagues working with the sensors. The goal is to build the sensors into the clothing, so in in the trousers in this case, so you you wouldn't have to stick the sensors on. There would be the trousers that you're wearing and it'd be part of the garment. What about if you wear shorts? (laughs) That's a good one. It wouldn't work so well for people in shorts. The sort of target people we're looking at are people that wear uniforms is ideal. So people like firefighters, people like soldiers... Uh, where that's why there's a lot of application interest in those areas. So we can know, firefighters know where they are in a building and how to get out. So if they relayed the information to each other, they'd know where their colleagues were, for example, in a fire situation to make it safer. And the same thing applies to soldiers in a, in a, in, in a war situation in a building. So your trousers have a better idea where you are than you do? Indeed, eventually, yes. <laughs> but why can't... it's not the wrong trousers. No, indeed, Wallace and Gromit would have a heart attack, <laughs> wouldn't they? But wh- why do we need this, Terry? I've got a mobile phone that is pretty good at... It got me here to the conference today. Why do you need trousers that can navigate your way around a building? Because uh, those two scenarios I've just said, in a, in a war situation, a combat situation, or in a fire situation, you can't really rely on there being any infrastructure there. There may have been Wi-Fi and other, other sensitive signals in the buildings that you could position from. There could be... GNSS that you could use, so like GPS that we would use in our cars or smartphones. 
And again, even in a war situation, it could be that those signals have been deliberately interfered with for one reason or another. So when we're looking at people like firefighters or, or soldiers, we're trying to work with technology they can carry with them that don't rely on any of the radio signals. Could you use it also for, say, rehabilitation of people? If you can work out where someone's going, how fast they're doing it, what muscle groups they're using to do it, then working out how efficiently they're moving could be quite useful. Yes, we've got a lot of interest in those areas as well. Certainly in terms of understanding how people are recovering from injury, or even in sports training, feeding it in there so it could provide vital information in all those areas. Puts a whole new spin on the phrase smart dress, doesn't it? Terry Moore from the University of Nottingham. And talking of taking a spin... My name is Paul Newman. I'm an academic and entrepreneur, and I'm really interested in machines that know where they are. And one example of that would be self-driving cars. Imagine a computer was presented with an image. Now, an image is literally a list of numbers. And And what are those numbers? Well, those numbers would be um, every pixel, every small element of a picture is described perhaps by three numbers, how much red there is, how much green there is, and how much blue there is. And so by writing down lists of three numbers, that's how I can encode an image. Now, when we ask a machine to see really what's happening at the fundamental level is that the machine is presented with a very, very epically long list of numbers in sets of three, and we're asked to say, is that person about to cross the road? Um, and it's but but really my brain pool knows how to do that, right? It does it very well. Your brain does it exceedingly well. So there is a solution, albeit a neural network currently doing it in my brain. Mm-hmm. So that, therefore, it must be feasible in some way to emulate this process. Which is why... I have this job because there's this existence proof that, you know, hedgehogs can do this. There is a school of thought that you look at how neural systems do it and you reverse engineer that. There's another system that you engineer it from the ground up. I'm in a luxurious position. I can believe in both. And something different is happening now. So one of the big questions is, why why this excitement in in machine learning and self-driving cars now? What is it that's different? And I I think there's a couple of things. Computer games helped us. There are things called GPUs, which are graphical processing units that we use to generate the amazing graphics that we see in games. And there was hardware that was developed for those machines that has made it possible to do a kind of computing that's very useful for machine learning. And machine learning is, simply put, I'm going to give a computer, a whole load of data, pictures, and I'm going to perhaps label in those pictures hedgehogs and baboons. And then the test is, can that machine learn a method that when presented with another image says, there's the baboon? But what has that got to do with me wanting to have a car which I don't have to drive myself, I can sit in it and it will take me where I want to go? Because we program now machines to learn such that when presented with data about roads or cars, we don't sit down and program a detector of cars. We label lots of data and we program algorithms that have structure in them to allow them to learn themselves to program a car. So we're not explicitly saying if a red pixel next to an orange pixel next to some chrome above something that looks like a tire, we would never do that because if the car point of view changes, you look from the side, it's a different thing. It's, it's not robust. Now, if I was talking to you as a chemical engineer and we were talking about some new drug we were wanting to invent and I asked you how long before that's going into a patient, the stock answer is always five to ten years. Mm. So what's the stock answer for a self-driving car? 
we'll start to see stuff that looks pretty compelling in around about five years, I think. In some places much before, but we have to be careful about really what is that system and what is it doing. There are so many reasons autonomous cars could change things. It could give independence to those who are unable to drive. It could massively reduce congestion and pollution and also reduce accidents. But while the technology has a long way to go, there are other challenges lying ahead. For example, who's to blame if a driverless car crashes into you? Peter Lee is a lawyer and the CEO of Wavelength.law. There's a myriad of related legal issues in the area of driverless cars around privacy and around um, their integration into onto the public highways, but also the question mark around uh, who's liable if a driverless car crashes. And uh, at the moment, that still needs some work by governments and lawyers to figure that out, in my view. Some of the bigger manufacturers and companies out there, including Volvo, came out recently to say that they would be prepared to self-insure in the events of an accident. But then there's also other questions around um, how parliaments might legislate in this area in the near future. So I suppose you've got the person who owns the car, you've got the person who built the car, and you've got the person who, or the people, who coded the software that the car works. Yes, that's right. So the issue in this area is that it's in the event of an accident and the car is fully autonomous, it's not the same as if somebody was sitting behind the wheel and had been negligent. It's more complicated than that. And currently, we would have to look at the chain of actors uh, that were involved in that incident and try and apportion blame. And um, I suppose the issue here is that technology is moving faster than, I guess, society can keep up with. What do you think needs to happen for um, the world to be ready for all these technologies? You're right, and this has happened throughout our history. Uh, humans will push the boundaries with technology and develop faster and faster. The law is often slower to react, but in some way that's quite a good check and balance against technical advancement. What it shouldn't be, though, is a, is a barrier. What it needs to do is protect society and protect the other individuals. It's all about creating a balance with advancing technology and existing laws. Peter Lee. And another thing to consider is that when you're allowing a connected system to pilot your car, this could leave it vulnerable to cyber attacks. Ross Anderson is Professor of Security Engineering at Cambridge University. The biggest problem facing um, autonomous vehicles in terms of security um, is that once you start connecting complex computing devices to the internet, you have to think about security as well as safety. In the modern connected world, once somebody discovers a combination of inputs that will cause your car to crash, they can then broadcast this to thousands of cars, potentially causing thousands of car crashes. And so once a vulnerability like that is discovered and starts to be exploited, you have to patch it quickly. And most car makers simply don't have any mechanism to go out and and patch cars over the air the way that your laptop or your mobile phone gets patched. Have there been any examples so far of this kind of nefarious attacks happening? Attacks have been demonstrated, um, for example, in a a Chrysler Jeep in America uh, by security researchers last year, which caused Chrysler to recall and change the software in 1.4 million vehicles. What happened with the Jeep was that Chrysler um, used a network, which they called Uconnect, which didn't have 
any effective network security. And so it was possible for somebody on the network to scan all 1.4 million vehicles that used this and determine their IP addresses of their locations. So you could look at the, for the latitude and longitude of a target vehicle and you, you could then interrogate it, find out what it was, and then you could go in and interfere with the software. Now, the attackers then demonstrated this by taking over a jeep in which a journalist was riding and deliberately slowing the uh, jeep down to the point that um, lorries uh, behind him on the freeway were honking their horns and making him kind of scared. How do you think we can avoid this? We're going to have to have some rules as to the safety and security certification of vehicles. This is going to be done in Europe because just as... Europe makes the world's privacy rules because Washington doesn't care and no other country is big enough to matter. So Europe is the main player in regulating the safety of all sorts of things from cars through medical devices to electrotechnical equipment. And so fundamentally this is a task facing the European Union to upgrade all the various agencies that are involved in inspecting various types of safety critical uh, equipment and issuing safety certifications for them uh, to make sure that they're also sufficiently secure to withstand hostile attacks. Will it ever be possible to keep these systems perfectly safe? Well, that's an unrealistic ambition. What you actually do um, is you see to it that when vulnerabilities come to light, you've got the means to fix them quickly and to roll out these fixes to all the millions of devices that you have in the field. That's what happens as an absolutely routine matter, uh, you know, to all Windows um, kit on the second Tuesday of every month. And um, Android also um, updates your uh, software in your phone every month. So this, this is just how the IT industry has evolved a way of coping with this. And so there are mechanisms that work, and what's needed um, is for um, sellers of cars, sellers of medical devices and so on, uh, to, to get with it and figure out how to make these mechanisms work for their own products. Ross Anderson there. And while this connectedness can make cars vulnerable, this is also what could make them save lives. Back to Paul Newman. I, I had a car accident five years ago, and I'm still haunted by it. I made a mistake. I was lucky that everyone was OK. I haven't been able to share that experience with any of my friends. That's not true about vehicles that can share their data and share their experiences. So we can envision a world now where the accidents are always awful. And yet, because of them, there are fewer of them because the mistakes and lessons learned get shared across the entire fleet. So you can imagine a world where a fender bender in Copenhagen actively improves someone's safety in a warehouse in Cape Town that afternoon. Clearly lots to think about then. That was Paul Newman from the University of Oxford and Oxbotica. 98% of our genome is doing other stuff and we don't have that understanding of what a sequence change means because there's no code that tells us. In this month's Naked Genetics, we're delving into the junk in the genome, or rather, our non-coding DNA. Less than 2% of the human genome contains genes, so what does all the rest do? Plus, a spooky gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. And this week's show comes to you from the Royal Institute of Navigation's annual International Conference. And we've been looking at the science of finding our way. If I want to get from A to B on Earth, I can pull out my phone, turn on the GPS, pull up my favourite map app, and hey presto. 
But what about navigating in space? Even in our own solar system, the distances there are measured in millions or even billions of kilometres. And journeys take years to complete. And there's no GPS out there. Nick James works on space navigation for BAE Systems. If you imagine we've got a spacecraft that's going, say, between the Earth and Mars, it's primarily being affected by the sun's gravity. We also have to deal with other gravitational forces as well. So all the planets in the solar system will exert a gravitational force on that spacecraft to a greater or lesser extent. The sun is usually the dominant one, but other planets, like Jupiter, have got significant gravitational force. And if you're going from Earth to Mars, when you're close to Earth or close to Mars, they do as well. Presumably we know where the planets are going to be at any given time, so clever mathematicians can work out roughly what sort of gravity you're going to feel from the planets across your journey. That's right. We know the positions of the planets in the inner solar system probably with an accuracy of a few hundred metres at any particular time, and even the larger planets in the far solar system we know to kilometre level accuracy. So what we can do in terms of the forces on the spacecraft, the gravitational forces, is that we know where the the planets are and we, we have an estimate of where the spacecraft is so we can work out those gravitational forces on the spacecraft. We do, though, then have other forces that act on the spacecraft, which are not gravitational forces, and they're called, not surprisingly, non-gravitational forces. And those forces range from things like solar radiation pressure, where essentially just sunlight falling on the spacecraft exerts a small acceleration on the spacecraft. How? It's basically momentum recoil. So you have photons coming from the sun. If you you imagine you've got a spacecraft with solar panels, uh, and Rosetta's a good example of this, it's got huge solar panels because it had to go a long way out in the solar system. It's got an area of about 64 square metres. And all the solar photons that fall on those solar panels, some of them get absorbed, but some will get reflected. And essentially, a a photon has momentum, and that reflection transfers momentum to the spacecraft. And so essentially, there is a very small pressure exerted on those solar panels just by the sunlight that's falling on them. How big is it? Tiny. Um, (laughs) If I, like, laid a human hair on a tabletop, is it sort of equivalent to that, or more or less? In in units, it's it's about 9 micronewtons per square metre. So there's a lot of zeros after the decimal point before you get to a big real number. Yes, so it's a so tiny force, but your point is that because these missions are seven to ten years in the making, they're, you know, they're flying for that long to reach their target, a tiny, tiny force, but over a really long period of time, means that it could turn into a really quite large error by the time you get where you're going. Yes, that's right. And it's particularly important because unlike if you're navigating with GPS, where essentially every moment you get a precise measurement of where you are, your position. When we're navigating through space, we don't have that. Basically, we we have three different kinds of measurements. We have Doppler, we have a ranging measurement, which allows us to measure the distance to the spacecraft. So both of those are radial, they're just in one direction. And we have another measurement called Delta Door, which actually gives us an angle to the spacecraft. But all of those don't directly give us the position of the spacecraft. So what we have to do to determine the position of the spacecraft is we have to make an estimate of where it was. We then integrate that forward using um, an orbit estimator, which, which essentially takes into account the forces acting on the spacecraft and then produces a new set of positions. And, it, and when we do that with a particular model of the orbit, we can then predict what the observations should be. So we can then predict what the range and the, and the Doppler and the Delta Door should be. 
Using that model, we can then compare that with what we actually measure and see if they compare. And hopefully, if we've got the orbit right, they do. Now, thinking science fiction, you know, hundreds of years hence, when there are spacecraft zipping all over the solar system, will there be the equivalent of GPS for our solar system? How would you, if you were designing the nav system for the spacefarers around our solar system of tomorrow, how would you set it up? Well, there are all sorts of possibilities, and one of, one of the most interesting ones is to use a, a natural GPS system called pulsars. Pulsars are objects which are neutron stars. They're stars that form at the end of a star's life. Essentially, they're very, very accurate clocks. Um, if you have an X-ray detector, you can detect those clocks. And essentially, because these pulsars are in all sorts of different directions, but they're very well-known positions, if you had a suitable t- detector on board your spacecraft, you could use these natural objects as a kind of GPS system. I mean, it's very similar to GPS. You're measuring arrival times and, and determining your position from that. The big problem there is a detector, so designing a detector for a spacecraft that could actually detect enough pulsars to make it practical. But if we're talking 100 years' time, I'm sure that's, that's a possibility. Nick James there from BAE Systems. From self-navigating trousers to travelling outer space, we've heard a lot this week about upcoming technology that's allowing us to find our way around. But navigation technology can sometimes also surprise us by helping in other areas, like, for instance, monitoring weather or flooding, because signals sent down from GPS satellites bounce back spacewards, where they can then provide us with valuable information. From Surrey Satellites, Martin Unwin. Back in 2003, we decided to do an experiment to find out whether these signals were bouncing off the Earth's surface and off the oceans. And so we put an experiment up uh, on a satellite called UKDMC, which took a, a mouthful of data, just 20 seconds at a time, and then sent it down to the ground, and we processed that using a software GPS receiver, and then we found out that there were reflections which we could pick up from space. Then we thought one step further that this should contain information about the surface of the Earth. Because it's bounced off it? Because it's bounced off, it's got, you might use a term, geophysical imprint. If you've got a rough surface, then it will spread the signal out, whereas if you've got a calm, flat surface, then it will be a clean reflection. And so how could you use that data, then, in those reflections? The biggest application, we think, is, is for measuring the roughness of the, of the sea surface, and uh, so we can measure the difference between a calm sea and a rough sea. And taking it one step further, we think this could be a good system for measuring the reflections in the middle of a hurricane, which could then be used to understand what's going on inside one of these storms. Are people not already doing that, though? There are satellites in orbit, radar scatterometers, They have higher frequencies, so they have a problem in that they are blocked by uh, rain and the kind of environment that a hurricane would see, whereas um, GPS signals go straight through that and get to the ocean surface. Is it just water, or can you get interesting information over land as well? We've been looking at reflections off water, and we've been looking at reflections off ice and land, and yes, we can see reflections from all of those. And the reflections off the land are showing up some very intriguing return patterns. So we're seeing vegetation tends to absorb signals, um, mountains tend to scatter it, but we are also seeing that, that dry land will tend to reflect it differently to wetland. And so there is the potential for measuring the moisture 
which is a very important parameter for uh, climate science. But NASA is now using our instrument on a constellation called Cygnus, and that's due to be launched in this December, and their specific objective is to look at hurricanes. And so that will mean rather than just one satellite getting a snapshot over one particular trajectory of the Earth's surface, if you've got a constellation of them, they're going to get a much more comprehensive coverage, aren't they? That's right, and this is the exciting thing about Cygnus. There's eight satellites which are being launched together, and these aren't big satellites because we're only talking about a modified GPS receiver. They're able to do this with a satellite that's only about 25 kilograms. A heavy suitcase will be heavier than that, and they will be trying to find reflections in the middle of hurricanes, but of course most of the time there aren't hurricanes, so they'll still be taking measurements over the ocean, which is going to be something very new. And these strange anomalies on the ground, is that... Area 51? We have seen some things which are um, possibly man-made interference. So there are some interesting features that we are seeing in our data, yes. But no further information about what they are was forthcoming. Yet. That was Martin Unwin from Surrey Satellites. And a huge thank you to all of our other guests this week. That was James Taylor, Kate Jeffrey, Terry Moore, Ramsey Farragher, Odds Finding Harida, Paul Newman, Peter Lee, Ross Anderson and Nick James. And a huge thank you also to the Royal Institute of Navigation for hosting us at their conference. Do join us next week when we'll be looking for life that's out of this world and asking, does DNA hold the key? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From me, Chris Smith, and from Georgia Mills, thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.